This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. A series on uh, on the life of David, and we're uh, in two Samuel chapter nine. We do like to kind of work through books. Sometimes we'll take themes. So after we've done the life of David, we're going to have uh, a, a series on your identity, who you are, and then we'll probably pick up uh, different books. So we like to kind of root it out of the Bible, and we're in two Samuel chapter nine. But I just thought I'd show you a video clip. Now I'm, I'm aware that as I show you this video clip, you're all going to want to watch the video, and not to get me to uh, to speak at all. Uh, so. Can we roll that video clip? Now. Our lives are very humble. What we have, we have to share. There is wine here to invite you. There is bread to make you strong. There's a bed to rest till morning. Rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today. Bless our dear sister and our good guest. Use this precious silver to become 
and honest men. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. We were in danger of Mark Clements singing the whole way through. Now stop it, stop, 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 stop. <laughs> okay, yeah, we all know that. Who's, who's seen the film? Uh, who's seen the show? Once, twice, three times, ten times, yes. Uh, I think uh, Mark and Soph particularly are into it. Yeah, uh, Les Miserables, or Les, isn't it? Not Les. If you're from Yorkshire, you say Les. Les Miserables is uh, actually, it's, it's not a true story, uh, but it's incredibly powerful. It's based on a, a book, if you know, by Victor Hugo. And it's an amazing story of a guy whose life was completely messed up, been in prison for stealing a loaf of bread, uh, he's a convict, been a convict for years, working on a chain gang, and he's become uh, worse and worse. He's on this downwards uh, slide, uh, Viljean, and what happens is he meets the, this bishop and stays the night, as you saw, and steals all his silver. And the bishop, in an incredible act of, of grace and forgiveness, says, no, 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 he hasn't stolen it, and then offers him the candlesticks. And if you know, watch the film, these candlesticks become iconic for for this kind of forgiveness, this, this grace, this unmerited favour that he receives from the bishop. And if you, if you like that story uh, and you're a Christian here this morning, it's because there's, there's something in that story that resonates. There's something of, of the gospel, there's something of the richness of, of, of God's story in that. And if you, hear, if you talk to me at all, you'll hear me talk that there's no real, there's no real story that's better than God's story. All, all the stories, all the stuff we love in cinema and theatre uh, are all just hints of, of, of God's big story. Uh, and so I want to just talk a little bit like that. Uh, Philip Yancey, the author in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, writes this, The power of the bishop's act, defying every human instinct for revenge, changed Jean Valjean's life forever. A naked encounter with forgiveness, even without repentance, melted the granite defences of Valjean's soul. And as you go through the story, there's another character called Javert who's kind of a legalist who's basically can't, everything needs to be done by the book. Everything needs to be done by the rules. Everything needs to be done correctly. And he can't understand that actually somebody could be forgiven and let go free. And 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 that, that power of grace, that power of something being set free and forgiven can change a man's life. And what happens is the law kills Javert, but it liberates, but grace liberates Viljean. Yancey again says, uh, Hugo's novel awakened in me a sense of grace. Grace has its own extraordinary power which reaches beyond law, beyond justice. Justice has a, a, righteous, a righteous, understandable kind of power. The power of grace is different, unworldly, transforming, supernatural. So what I want to talk about is grace. And as we look in, in, in 2 Samuel 9, we're going to find an incredible story of grace. We're going to find an incredible story of God's grace. Uh, just turn to the person next to you and just say, what is grace? I know there's a song by you 2 It says it's a name for a girl. What, turn to the person next to you and say, well, well, I think grace is this. Does anyone want to play? 
Go on, Andrew. Unmerited. Unmerited. Undeserved. Unearned favour. So if justice is getting what we deserve, mercy is then what? Not getting what we do deserve. Grace is simply getting goodness that we've never, ever earned. So it's not just you get let off, but here's the candlesticks as well. And that's what grace is about, and we're going to see that uh, today. So let's race on, because time's already beating me. Um, okay, so David. David's king. He settled in his, uh, he settled in his palace, uh, and he's had a time of peace. Uh, he's had that encounter, as we saw last week, with, with uh, Nathaniel, who says, no, you don't want to build a house. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a, a kingdom for you. And then God says to David, I took you, from the, took you from the pasture, took you from being a shepherd, and made you king. And we said, actually, that God's much more interested in the much more glorified in what he does in people than what he does in buildings. And even though we've got a great building here, he's much more interested in what happens in us. And so that's what we did last week. So let's pick it up. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul whom I could show loving kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. Are you Ziba? The king said to him. At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's loving kindness? Remember that word, loving kindness, or words. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he is lame, or he's a cripple in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So so King David had him brought from Lodibar. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he fell on his face and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, Mephibosheth replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you loving kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant? that you should notice a dead dog like me. Father, we thank you for this gospel story. We thank you for this story of your amazing grace. And Lord, I pray as we unpack it that we would find ourselves in this story, both as Mephibosheth and as David, and we would find you, Lord Jesus, in the middle of this story. Amen. Now, it's interesting. We went, Nazi and I went to Istanbul, a great place to go visit, and the, what prompted our visit to Istanbul is we saw some programs on the BBC about the Ottomans. And one of the things that really shocked me about the Ottoman Empire is that they did what was called fratricide. Does anyone know what fratricide means? Killing your brothers. Yeah, killing your brother. And what would happen is uh, the Ottoman Empire, every time a, 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 a new uh, sultan uh, succeeded to power, that what he would do, he would exterminate all his brothers. They're often half-brothers because the sultan would, would sleep with all the different women in the harem and produce a whole load of heirs. And then the one that rose up to be king would then kill all his brothers. And actually, I was really sh- shocked by that. But actually, if you dig deep into the kind of culture of ancient Near East, that's what happened. When you became king, you wiped out your enemies. That was what was expected of you. That's what people did. So that there's a sense where, you know, if you're, if you're king, the previous dynasty, you know, you think the Wars of the Roses, I don't know if you've watched that stuff um, on the TV last year, the kind of white queen, red queen stuff, the Wars of the Roses, that they, they wouldn't have let any enemies survive. They'd just 
kill them all. And that was the culture we were in. So when, the, so when Jonathan uh, was son of King Saul, uh, there's a sense where David had been chosen by God to be the king, and, he, and there was a nervousness about Jonathan and a nervousness about Saul that when David became king, he'd wipe them all out. And so we got a situation where uh, Jonathan says to David, will you look after me? Will you make sure I don't die? Will you show loving kindness to me when you become king? And David promises. Now you can understand that. Why can you understand that David would promise that to, to Jonathan? Think about Jonathan. They've been friends. There was a covenant. There was a friendship relationship with Jonathan. And actually, we're quite good at kind of being gracious to our friends. But actually, there's a time where Saul goes into a cave to take a wee. And uh, he's about to go in the cave. uh, And in the back of the cave, David is hiding. And as Saul is very vulnerable, he decides, I'm not going to kill him. And he comes out of the cave. He cuts actually a bit of his cloak off. As he goes out of the cave, he holds it up and says, look, I could have killed you today. And Saul says this to him, he says, Surely I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. That was incredibly different because it's, that was incredible because that for, Dave, for David to say to Jonathan, I won't kill you, but for, but for David to say to Saul, I'm not going to wipe out your family, there's something different going on. There's not a, a gen, this is not what you find, this is not the politics of the ancient Near East. This isn't even just a nice guy. There's something fundamentally different that's happened in Jonathan, that, uh, in David, that he actually says, I am going to show loving kindness to you. David's whole identity, I suggest, is shaped by the good news of God's grace, the undeserved, unmerited favor and loving kindness of God towards people. In fact, David's whole identity was, you took me from the pasture when I was nobody, when I was the young boy that nobody cared about, I was a nobody. You, you, Dave, Samuel went and got me and said, bring him in and anointed him in front of my brothers and then made him the king. And he understood the, the grace of God, that he'd not earned that. There was nothing about him that earned that. That God just picked him out and said, I love you. So what happens is, I think that, that David wants to, to do that same thing again. He understands the gospel. He understands that when that's happened to you, you want to do it to someone else. When you've had grace, when you've received grace, you want to do it to someone else. And we find all the way through in Les, Les Mis, don't we? We find all the way through that actually he starts to show grace because he's received grace. He's received that, your forgiveness and the candlesticks. He starts to show grace to people. He starts to be full of loving uh, loving grace, first to the, 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 the daughter of one of his workers, and then later to boyfriend, I guess, of it were Marius of one of, uh, uh, and all that. And he, she start, he starts to show grace. And David, I think, wants to, wants to show grace. He's motivated not by love for God, uh, Jonathan, but because he's changed by the gospel, he's changed by what God has done him, he wants to show grace. He wants to proclaim God's loving kindness. Now, okay, a little quiz question again. When, you, when, you, we, did, when we did the book of Ruth, um, we came across this idea of loving kindness, and it's a, I don't usually go into like the kind of root words, but actually it's such a rich word I thought we'd go into. It. It's a word that we did in the book of Ruth when we're looking at Naomi, and it's a word called Hasid. Okay, does anyone remember that? We talked about it, and it carries this idea uh, of freely given, unfailing, sacrificial love. Boaz shows Hasid to, 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 to Naomi and Ruth. He shows that kind of 
unfailing love. He shows that love, that undeserved, unmerited grace. It's a grace word. Hasid is the, the quality that moves someone to act for the benefit of someone else without considering what's in it for me. It wraps up love and mercy, grace and kindness, all of God's most treasured characteristics in one word. It's a gospel word. So that word loving kindness is kind of gospel word that I am going to do you good, not because you've earned it, not because you're worthy, not because anything good about you, but because I want to do you good. And it's a God word, but also in this, uh, because it's, it's a, a, a David word. So they say to him, yes, there's still a son of Jonathan. And it's interesting, I think Zippo, the servant, is, is quite keen that he doesn't get killed, so he wants to kind of ingratiate himself to the King David. So he says, yeah, at your service. And um, he said, there's a, there's a son of Jonathan, but you don't need to worry about him, because he's a cripple. He's lame in both feet. By the way, as you read the Bible, you realize that political correctness hadn't reached there. So if I start to use words like cripple or whatever, or lame, it's not because I'm not politically correct or aware of that, it's just because those are the Bible words. I mean, it's quite shocking, really, that one of the things that, that you read in the Bible, it says that the blind and the lame and the cripple weren't allowed to come into the temple. You think, is that God? It's not the God I kind of know, but in the end it's in there, isn't it? What's going on? Because I think there was lack of revelation. There's been more revelation of God's goodness as we've gone on. So just to be aware of that. And he says, um, he's a nobody. He doesn't matter. There's nobody about him. There's, there's nothing about him. He's this, he's this cripple. And actually, the first time we hear about this, this guy, uh, Mephibosheth, is in 2 Samuel 4.4, and it's really tragic. He's five years old. If you, you think, I don't know who's five years old. They're all out in kids' work. I don't want you to go and check and panic and get nervous about, are they okay? But this is what happens. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Saul, his grandfather, and Jonathan, his father, death came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, she fell, and the boy became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. This boy is orphaned, isn't he, by a fall. He's orphaned by the rebellion. There was a rebellion, actually, his older brother, Ishbosheth. I'd actually said, I'm going, to take David, I'm going to take David on. We're going to have a, like a war of the roses. We're going to fight. David hadn't killed Ishbosheth, and so he takes him on. And obviously his younger brother, Mephibosheth, five years old, they're worried that actually he's going to die. You know, now his father's died. He's worried that David's going to come and kill him. And so the, this boy is from a, the family of a fallen king. His, uh, his lineage is hostile to the rightful king. And his name's a really awful name, really. I think it's a nickname. His name means seething dishonor or dispeller of shame. Imagine that when they call in the register instead of Damaris. And say, seething dishonor, are you here? That's what they called him because what happened is to be disabled, to be uh, a cripple, to be lame was completely dishonorable. It's almost a shameful thing. It's a hide this cripple away because... Men and, and kings should be strong and powerful, but, but here's one incredibly weak who's, who's, who's literally fallen from grace. He's fallen from where he used to be, the, uh, a son of the king in the line of the, of the palace, and he's fallen from grace. And I'm sure that was a, a derisory nickname. Mephibosheth means dispeller of shame. You just bring shame wherever you go. There's something about you, Mephibosheth, that just everybody's just embarrassed about you. Just please, will you just keep away? There's that disability that just the people think, I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. 
His actual proper name was the Lord pleads my cause. Those names are important as we go on. So David's advisors think, who wants to bring this this lame, this broken man into the king's presence. It's totally unacceptable. The kings, kings were surrounded by the beautiful people. They're surrounded by the, the young and the good-looking. A bit, a, bit, a bit like this church, actually, and there's older folks like me. But, you know, the kings were surrounded by those that would look good, who would who'd kind of uh, make the, the king look better. You know, just like um, people want to get a good-looking girlfriend, good-looking boyfriend, and part of it is because they want to make themselves look better. And the king would be surrounded by, by beautiful people. So there was no place for this crippled person. There's no place for Mephibosheth. There was no place for this lame person. And they thought, well, who, who's interested in him? There's a son of Jonathan, but he's a cripple. But you won't be interested in him. Surely you won't be interested in him. And, and the king says, where is he? The king asks, Ziba, the servant, says, he's at the house of Micah, son of Amiel, in Lo-Debar. Now, Lo-Debar, Lo means no. And Debar means pasture. This guy's run away from the king's palace and he's hidden in a place of no pasture. He's in the desert, he's in a barren place, he's in an empty place and he's just scraping an existence for fear of his life. And actually, this story is a little gospel story in miniature because can you think of anybody who used to live in a garden, there's a hint there, used to live in a garden who was asked to be the, 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 it was the son of a king who then was involved in a rebellion and was kicked out of the garden, expelled from the garden, and went away hiding. Was hiding. And, and somebody says, where are you? And then he's out of the garden, and he's living in a barren place, and he's going to make his way by the sweat and toil of his brow. I've had give you enough information. Do you know who it is? This is Adam, isn't it? This is, this is Adam. Adam's name means mankind, means humanity, means us. This Mephibosheth is us. You, I want to write yourself into this story and say, I'm David. Yeah, I'm the son of the king, the conquering one, the attractive one, the whatever. But actually, we're this. This is us. This is us. I read a book um, uh, a few weeks ago, and, uh, and one of the, the chapters in there talks about the, the idea of scarcity. I think if you were around, you might have heard me mention it. And I think it's really interesting that he lives in this barren place because we live in a place of scarcity. Not because the world has actually not got resources, but because we always live with this, I've not got enough. Yeah, that resonates, doesn't it? I've not got enough. If only there's a bit more. And we always feel we've never got enough. And we always really feel, if we're honest, we feel we're never enough. We can kind of relate to Mephibosheth that there's something inside of all of us that's a little bit broken. There's something inside of us that we really want to hide away. We really want to hide the fact uh, that we're sinners. We really want to hide the fact of who we really are. We, we don't want to be exposed. Does anyone know the hymn Amazing Grace? How does it start? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that... Oh, come on, John Newton. It's a bit heavy, isn't it? Saved a wretch. Surely you should say, I'm a, I'm a lovely person. I wrote this lovely hymn, and now he's a, he's a vicar in Cambridgeshire. What a lovely man, John Newton. Lovely him. But you know the story of John Newton, don't you? What was he? He was a slave trader. He is a slave trader. He is a kind of raper of women. He talked about the 60,000 souls of people that had died in that passage from, from, North, from Africa into the, uh, to the um, West Indies, into the Caribbean. And, and he was plagued by this. And he said, I'm just a wretch. 
I'm just a wretch. I'm just a shameful thing. I'm a, I'm, I'm a dispeller of shame. And he felt this guilt. But we'll, we'll pick his story up in a minute. But let's go back to, the, to Mephibosheth. He's a cripple, said David's advisors. Don't say his name. Don't mention his disability. But David doesn't say, now, excuse me, can I just check out how badly is he damaged? How, how crippled is he? You know, is this a really bad disability? What's the level of it? You know, is, is, could, I, could we just kind of, could we hide him slightly and we do okay? He's not asking any of that. He just says, where, are, where is he? Where is he? And I think there's something about grace that doesn't say, well, how good is a person? God's not looking around in the earth and saying, well, we'll just see how good Josh is and see if he's really up to standard and see if he really does good and if Josh gets it all right and then, 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 then God says, well, I'll love him then. Yeah, Josh, you know that you're blown, don't you, really? It's, you're never going to be good enough. You know, I mean, I know some of you might think you are. I mean, that's the thing about Javert. He thinks he could be good enough by keeping the rules. But actually, he's never good enough. And he's got that deep inside, I'm just not enough, that sense of uh, scarcity. But actually, grace doesn't look for the one that's well qualified. That's what we do. Grace looks for the one that's not qualified. I, as I'm writing it, I thought it's actually a bit like water. Grace always flows downhill. It always flows from those that have to those that haven't. It always show, flows from the loved to the unloved. It shows from the acceptable altogether to the ones who haven't got it. It flows downhill. And, and David is seeking out like water. It's saying, is there anybody, is there anybody, is there anybody that I can show the love that God has shown to me? Is there anyone? Just as God comes in the garden to Adam, doesn't he? Adam, where are you? He's seeking him out. Why? Yes, there's, a, there's damage and curse, but actually there's blessing. He covers his sin. He covers his with animal skins, and he says, I'm going to provide a solution. I'm going to provide a, Satan, a serpent crusher. I'm going to provide a, somebody who's going to make it all right. And David comes, doesn't he, and says to, seeks out Mephibosheth. He says, where is he? And the last thing they want is, is the king's men, that would be us, Christians, I guess, if you're a Christian, knocking on their door. Because they think we're the bringers of bad news, don't they? They think, you know what you're going to do? You're just going to make me feel guilty. I used to work in a Catholic school, and they'd say, the thing is, the trouble with, with, with uh, Christianity, this is the kids in the school who say this to me, the trouble with Christianity is it's just there to make you feel bad. To make you feel, well, you are a shameful thing, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. You are a wretched thing, absolutely. You are a horrible sinner, aren't you? And we all go, oh, yeah, yeah. And that's what they think is... <laughs> Yeah, that's what they did. So they'd come out on Ash Wednesday with this kind of ash on their head and, and I'd say, what's all that about? And, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, doesn't it say that you actually, you, you, you're actually made from ash and you're meant to be repentant of your sin? We're just talking about sin. We're not, we're talking about. And there's this kind of whole thing of, what, you want to tell me about I'm a sinner? You want to tell me I'm bad? Look, just build my self-esteem, will you? Just tell me I'm great. Just put some love and power into me. What, tell me I'm bad? And that's what they think they are. So when the king's servants come, it, Mephibosheth doesn't think this is going to be good, does it? He thinks it's going to be bad. Why does he think it's going to be bad? Because he's a cripple, but worse than that, because he is a son of his enemy. He's a son of his enemy. So they bring Mephibosheth to Jerusalem. And Mephibosheth, it says uh, in the English ESV, which is, does it better than English, no, NIV, says that Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. I thought about that. I thought, imagine for us to fall on our face, that's kind of an act of, well, you get down and stoop down and lie down, don't you? 
But imagine a crippled person, a person who's disabled. It's almost like he's so scared, so scared that's what's going to happen, he just throws his crutches away and just falls flat on his face. He's just flat on his face. His face is in the dust, the dirt, it's in the, on the ground. It's just laid there. He calls himself, doesn't he? It's not self-esteem, he just says, I'm a dead dog. This is it. He expected, didn't he? He expected the, the king's sword run over his neck. Expected the, the king's anger, the king's fury, the, the end of the rebellious line. And sometimes people can come to God and think, oh, that's what you're going to get from God. You're going to get the king's anger. You're going to get the king's fury. You're going to get his sword and his judgment on your neck. It's really funny, though. I think that I hear people talk, I don't know if they say it so much now, but they used to say, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm, I'm going to ask God a question about that. Yeah? Have you ever heard people say that? What? No, nobody says that. I, you know, I'm going to ask them about that. What's happened with, why, why have people, journalists, been having their heads chopped off in the middle of Iraq? You know, why is that the guy, the first one that had his, American, he was a Christian. Why, why is that happening? Yeah, I'm going to get to heaven, I'm going to ask God that. I'm going to ask God, why, why did that happen to me? Why did my dad die at 17? I'm going to ask God that. That's not fair. I'm going to, I'm going to, have, a, I'm going to have a word with him. Check out a few things. But would you really? Timothy, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, describes God like this. If you found yourself in the throne room, he calls him God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. Imagine you're summoned into his presence. What's your posture going to be? Well, I'm quite a good lad. I live in Cheltenham. It's quite a nice place. I went to local school, church school, and you know, I, I passed a few GCSEs now. Yeah, I give money to the poor occasionally, and this is, a, this is what's on my CV. Yeah? Now you're going to fall face down, aren't you? You're going to think, I am unable, spiritually crippled, unable to raise myself to look him in the eye. You're just in the dirt, desperate. I mean, Isaiah 6, famous passage where somebody finds himself in God's presence. Isaiah 6 says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What does he do? Does anyone know? He says, I fell down and went, Whoa! I'm unraveled. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and the eyes have seen the king. He thinks he's going to die, doesn't he? And Mephibosheth, when he got into the, the presence of God, thought, oh, he's going to die. And actually, in many ways, that's true. I met John Newton, the, the guy we mentioned who wrote Amazing Grace. He was on a storm in the, crossing the, uh, the North Atlantic on a, on a boat on the third leg of the triangular trade. And, he's, and this massive storm kicks up. And he writes, in his, he writes in, his, in his autobiography, It was not the waves that I feared, nor even death, because death would have been sweet, but to stand as a shameful rebel before the Holy God. It's grace that taught my heart to fear, but grace my fears relieved. David speaks the sweetest words over Mephibosheth. Uh, one writer called it a salvation oracle. Almost it had a structure that he would have recognized. It's a salvation story. Do not fear, for I will surely show you loving kindness. There's that word again. To you, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I'll restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. They're great words, aren't they? Do not fear. When people meet God, meet angels, 
the, the first thing they do is fall down flat on their face. And the first thing the angels say is what? Do not fear. Do not fear. Thought he's going to die. David says, don't fear. Don't fear. David had pursued Mephibosheth. Brought him from his empty place where he's hiding. Sought him out to, to, not to put fear in him, but to put loving kindness in him. What does David write in Psalm 23 that you might be familiar with? I don't know. It might be up there. I don't know. What does he write? Surely, finish it, goodness and mercy. That word's not a great translation. It's actually loving kindness. It's that same word again. Surely, goodness and loving kindness have pursued me, sought me, tracked me down. All the days of my life. Here's, here's, here's David's experience of God. Not the mean and nasty God who falls on his face and he's going to kill him because he's got every right to. But the, here's the God whose goodness has pursued him all the days of his life. This is how God has dealt with David. God's freely given, unfailing, sacrificial love, mercy, grace and kindness came looking for him. More than that, pursued him. When he was a nothing, when he was a shepherd boy, kept pursuing him all the days of his life. And that's how David dealt with Mephibosheth. And that's how God deals with you. This is true of you. Surely, goodness and loving kindness have pursued you all the days of your life. Now, some of you might be running and hiding. But actually, God pursued us, didn't he? He pursued us. We were hiding in a low and barren place. Compared to heaven, glory, this is a barren place. This is not a fruitful place compared to the fruitfulness of God. And, but yet Jesus came and pursued us, didn't he? he? He came and took on flesh. He came, on, he came to find us where we're hiding. It says he came to seek and save that was, was lost. He came in loving kindness to give his life, dying the rebel's death that we deserved. The sword did fall on his neck, as it were. Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Even as Jesus was pouring himself out on the cross, uh, his, his unfailing love was pouring out to us. Now let's pick up Mephibosheth's name as, uh, name as we finish. His name means dispeller of shame. His disability had brought shame to his family. And, and, but yet, who removed his shame? Who dispelled his shame? It was Jesus. Jesus took away his shame. You're a, you're a shameful thing, but Mephibosheth, I'm taking away your shame. He, Jesus was shamed on the cross, wasn't he? Naked shame, mocked, rejected, a disgusting thing. This is like from those who men turn their faces. This is a disgusting thing. But he's doing that to take away shame. What does his other name mean? The Lord pleads my cause. How did Jesus plead our cause? Say, we don't deserve to die, but we deserve to be loved. He says on the cross, doesn't he? Father, forgive them, I don't know what you're doing. It says his, it's, his blood cried out, as it were, to God saying, forgive them, love them, bless them. Like the Bishop of Dain in Lemmes, who in grace gave Jean Valjean his most precious candlesticks that he might be free, God gave up his most precious, precious gift, his son that we might be free. David doesn't just say, uh, you're not going to get killed. Mercy, he does more, doesn't he? He restores his lost inheritance, everything was lost, and he invites him to eat at his own table. This was the gospel plan all along, wasn't it? That we were rebels, rebels against God, cripples, unable to bring ourselves to God, unable to drag ourselves into his presence, but God came and pursued us. 
It says in Ephesians 1, in love he chose us to be adopted as his sons. That's what it means when it says, come and eat at my table. The sons ate at the king's table. Through Christ our Lord, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I can, I can think of a day that, that he says, you're going to eat at my table forever. You're going to eat at my table forever. And the king's kind of strong and mighty sons would come down and take their place at the table. And then in, I think, I'm not allowed, it doesn't give me this license in the Bible, but just go with me. I think then comes in David carrying Mephibosheth. He carries him in. That's a, a picture of what's the prodigal daughter. It's by a guy called Charlie Maxey who speaks on the Alpha Course. And, uh, but actually, I was looking for the picture where Viljean carries Marius, doesn't he? Through the sewer. This guy's going to die. He, he, he's, he's got no reason to, to, to love him. And, uh, it, you know, but yet he picks him up and he carries him through the sewers, through all the mess, and drags him through. And he doesn't even know it. That's what God's done for us. Come and dragged us through out of all the mess. He's come and taken us when we couldn't walk, when we couldn't bring ourselves to God. And he's brought us to God. And I think that, that David brought Mephibosheth and he put him at the table. And, and as, he's, as he sat at the table, what was covered was all his vulnerability and all his weakness. He sat at the table like everyone else. And that's how we do. We, we broke bread last week. Maybe we should have done it again this week. Come to the Lord's table. But we all come at God's table and he covers our sin. That we sit there as sons and daughters. We were former cripples, former rebels, former exiles, living in an empty, barren place. God has come to do that to us. That's our story, isn't it? We fall down in shame and in brokenness before the king. But he's not having any of that, is he? He comes and carries us. He comes and picks us up. You know, in every other religion, you've got to carry your God. If you've got other gods, you, they're heavy and you've got to carry them. If you want success as your God, it's hard work. You've got to carry it. If you want wealth as your God, it's hard work. You've got to earn it. You've got to carry it. If you want approval of other people, it's all the time you've got to, you've got to earn it. You've got to earn it and carry it. But actually, God comes and carries us. He comes and carries us. But the story ends with us doing what? David actually had been carried by God, been lifted up from where he was and carried by God into, into the place of blessing. But he's asking the question, isn't he? Is there anyone? Is there anyone that that I can show God's loving kindness to us. As we go out of here, we're going to sing, but as we go out of here, that should be your gospel question. If you've received the love of God, the very question that should be annoying you is not like, what sh- oh, where will I park my car? Or, I wonder what's on telly. What should be in your mind is, is there anyone I can show God's loving kindness to? Because those who've tasted the grace of God just love to show the grace of God. Let's, uh, let's worship.
For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.